Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Again, this is a very specific area, as Daria noted. Like, as Dara noted, sorry, Daria? What I heard that as, as Dara, you noted, but yeah, wow, we're already, you're already forgetting us. <laughs> no, I just started great show, thinking, though. it's a great show. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Um, it's a time of transitions. Uh, we just had an election. But also, this tragically is going to be our last episode with Jane, who has some some exciting news for the world, which, against interest, I, I will let you share uh, as you as you launch the competition. I, I I am. I am going to the New York Times. I will be hosting a podcast for the New York Times opinion section called The Argument, um, which will sadly probably feature less Swedish administrative data, but will feature more internal pluralization. As far as I'm concerned, internal pluralization is the law now. Um, I'm and- extremely interested to see how the standards desk at the New York Times deals with it this this is going to be delightful that's you know we, we we all must face challenges in our own time and my challenge will be taking internal pluralization to the world but um yes uh today is my last episode and about that i am extremely sad i've said repeatedly that this has been the best job i've ever had and this is the best podcast that has ever existed especially on the subjects of Swedish administrative data. Unless there's like a secret Swedish podcast that we're about to get some very strange (laughs) emails about. But no, seriously, this has been an absolutely fantastic ride to have been on with two of the best colleagues in the world. And I'm very, 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 very sad to be leaving and excited for the future, but also sad. And I'm sure that there's a German word for whatever that is. Well, we will we will miss you. We already miss you in the neighborhood here. Uh, in, in I'm Shaw, biking and, around. I uh, I, yeah. I ran into you and your son yeah. and Jose talked about we talked about the Civil War for a minute. It was great. <laughs> it's at least easy, easy to spot hair. So I see, it's you, true. I see you riding by. Um, we obviously don't don't argue here on the weeds ever. Uh, so it's a very different no. um, ki- kind of podcast. Um, we also have exciting uh, weeds related news, which is that we are going to be launching an interview series on the Friday episodes called The Next Four Years. Uh, is looking forward to 
the next four years. Uh, it's going to be an eight episode run. Uh, there's, a, I think, a Christmas interval and stuff in there, uh, but it's going to be a, a set of great stuff. I'm starting to get people lined up for it. Um, so I think we will learn a lot about the future there. Um, but we wanted to talk a little bit about the past, the election that Donald Trump has not quite conceded. So Derek was saying before the show, you were telling me that you have nothing to say about this. But I think that you do, because back before you went to ProPublica and became such a, a button-down journalist, I think you had a lot of smart thoughts about like Trump as a persona and the implications of it. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, we've talked about Trump a lot for the past four years, but so much of like what I've said for four years is like, let's pay attention to actual policy. Like, let's pay attention to what's actually happening. There's a lot of just conservative governance happening. But this to me is like, this is really some like some Trump shit is going down now. Like he he Republicans seemed a couple days ago like they were edging toward, yeah, OK, we lost the election. And now he's really dragged them back to we're going to fight this thing. Yes. So uh, to be clear, when I say that I don't have thoughts on the election, like this is the first of several elections night uh, that I have been, you know, a civilian, essentially, like I wasn't covering the campaign per se. I didn't have work related tasks during election night. I was working on our, our election land project. So I was kind of chasing down tips on voter access throughout the day. But then kind of I was in the same position that a lot of other people were in terms of twiddling their thumbs on election night. And the only thing I have to say about that is that it's a terrible experience. And I absolutely understand in a visceral way now how the experience of receiving results from the states that report their results most quickly unhelpfully shapes one's perception of how the election is going in a way that is extremely hard to correct when more complete results come in. But, you know, I do think that, Matt, you're right, the kind of the post-election, like what's going down now is a sen- is is a great deal about the all-consuming psychology of Donald Trump. And, you know, it is very frustrating to have to continually talk about Trump as like this outsized personality for all the reasons you've mentioned, Matt. But like, it it is obviously true at this point that we are looking at what we are looking at right now because Donald Trump's ego is the most important animating force in the Republican Party. And I don't particularly know where that goes. So far, I think I've been actually genuinely surprised that last week it really did seem like not just Republican elites, but like the vast majority of Americans were invested in in the election, invested in the election results, uh, willing to take those results for granted. Like there wasn't kind of mass mobilization in the streets. There were some worrisome demonstrations outside like election offices, but not there wasn't kind of mass mobilization on the part of Republicans to kind of reject the results of the election. And if that continues, then that would be good for, you know, society and for the livelihood for the lives and livelihoods of the people who would otherwise be involved. But like, I think that right now that is that kind of inherent 
desire to trust the system or maybe more cynically to like not be so invested to get out in the streets is being worn down, like actively worn down a little bit. Um, And I don't really know where we go from here. So the thing about this that I just keep thinking about is that right now what the Trump campaign is doing through the I think someone was saying that the campaign sent out like 20 emails yesterday. This is a grift. This is the monorail episode of The Simpsons. This is basically, if you look at the fine print of these emails, the money that is supposedly going to the election defense fund, about 60% of it is going to uh, campaign debts and 40% is going to the Republican National Committee. But any remaining money is going to the election defense fund, which if you look at what 60% and 40% add up to, I have a series of questions. And so I think a lot of people are making the point that basically this is an effort to keep the base extremely mad until the two runoff elections in Georgia, though it's an interesting technique for the two Republican candidates in Georgia to be arguing that the Republican secretary of state should step down because there's election anomalies. There aren't. But you also need people to trust enough in the system to vote in the election that's going to be had in January, which is why I think it's it's. There have been numerous conservative commentators who have basically been like, this is a this is a grift. Like all of the weirdo, extremely online conspiracy theories about watermarks or the involvement of some uh, very complicated conspiracy theories, like all of this ends up with people showing up at Four Seasons Total Landscaping with a guy who's been convicted of sex crimes, making up nonsense and I think that that's something with which it's worth taking keeping in mind here is that this is clear. This is a base activation strategy and a money making strategy. And it's been hilarious to see people who have just won elections like Lindsey Graham said yesterday that Republicans win because they have better ideas and Republicans lose because Democrats cheat. And I'm like, you just won an election like you're good to go for a couple of years. But also, like, you always need to be always be fundraising. And so I think that's the thing about this that's more concerning, but less worrying, because I feel as if those are two separate emotions that this so much of this is the the scene in Goodfellas where you got to burn down the restaurant because you've taken out as many loans and you've done all of this other stuff and it's time to just burn it down and run away. And it's fascinating to see everyone involved. The operating assumption has been, and this isn't really articulated kind of even on this podcast, but I think a lot of the operating assumption over the last four years has been that Republicans who aren't Donald Trump have more investment in the continued existence and success of the Republican Party after Donald Trump than he does. And so they are likely to be considering a set of incentives that like looks that has a slightly longer time horizon. And that model would predict that if you are engaging in activity that might, one, lead to a large part of your base deciding that the electoral process isn't worth participating in because it's rigged, or two, result in the kind of political violence that would create a backlash against your party, that like those might be costs that they would be considering and figuring out whether or not to continue engaging in this kind of behavior. And like the fact that that is not a calculus that appears to be happening, or at very least that they are 
not as risk averse in that regard as you would expect politicians to be, indicates to me that what is going on here isn't just a kind of like grift and damn the consequences. It's also the continued function of Donald Trump's hold on the minds of other Republican elites. Like, we saw, we were reminded a little bit of just how persuaded a lot of people are that Donald Trump is a unique political genius on Tuesday night, right? When it seemed like for a hot minute, everything that it was 2016 all over again. And I think a lot of the kind of people who were watching those returns rooting for Trump to lose had a certain amount of not only is everything that we've ever thought of over the last six months incorrect, but this man truly is able to just surpass all of our rational models. Once more vote totals came in, I think liberals snapped out of that. But Republican, there does appear to be the belief both within the Trump White House and among other Republicans that like Donald Trump is a unique political genius who has tapped into, who has built a stronger connection with the base than any of the rest of them could ever hope to claim. And so they had better go along with what he says because it's the only way to ensure their political survival, which is like, it appears to be, for one thing, empirically belied by the election results in which many of them ran ahead of Donald Trump. Right. So I I think, you know, there's two things from the election results that interact with that in a disturbing way. Right. So one is that we see like Trump really is less popular than the kind of generic GOP brand. Um, We saw it in 2016. We saw it again in in 2020. It's obvious in the approval ratings. And like, it's just common sense, you know, like he he does weird stuff that is politically harmful. At the same time, Republicans are operating with this huge geographic advantage, right? So it's like in a 50-50 country, in a different set of electoral rules, it's it, the country is evenly divided, the stakes are high, you're sweating all the details. And so you're like really worried, like, can we, you know, marginalize this? How do we need to distance ourselves? But instead you have the opposite, right? That it's like, there's this very entrenched Senate majority. Um, the electorate of Maine is very, very forgiving of Susan Collins. And everybody else uh, can sort of be be fast and loose. Like, Jane, like you talked about how sort of goofy it was that Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, claims the election was stolen right yeah. after he won re-election. Yes, that's the same ballot. Like, the, the entire impetus here is just, it's so ridiculous. But it's, it's sort of the opposite, right? Like, Lindsey Graham faced a tough, it was a tough challenge from Jamie Harrison in the sense that Jamie Harrison is a charismatic guy and a good politician, and he had a ton of money. It was a very vigorous campaign. But what it turned out at the end of the day was not just that Graham won, but like Graham crushed him, right? Because South Carolina is way more conservative than the average American. But the way the Senate map works, the average Senate seat is just way to the right of the American center. So it makes perfect sense for Mitch McConnell to both sort of indulge Trump, but also like Mitch McConnell cares a lot about the Republican party and he cares a lot about winning. And so he like successfully maneuvered the Amy Coney Barrett situation. So that like 
you know, he he put the screws on Susan Collins to vote for Brett Kavanaugh because he needed Brett, Susan Collins's vote. But then at the last minute, he didn't need her vote for Barrett. She voted no. From what I've heard from pollsters, her approval rating in Maine went up soaring. And now he retains power through those means. But now it's like, what does he care if the 50th percentile voter, even 51st, 52nd, thinks Trump is being crazy, right? Like, it's correct to ride the tiger in this way. He doesn't face any trade-off between doing what most people want and winning elections. The trade-off he faces is just like he needs to to manage things. And it's very unhealthy. And, and you know, I, and I think it should make us worry, particularly because, like, I don't think there's going to be, like, a trucker general strike or anything like that. But the last time this birther stuff, you know, the idea that Barack Obama was illegitimate for reasons that didn't make any sense. And a lot of Republican leaders were like, well, who knows, yada, yada. It's like, then Donald Trump becomes president. I think that's the thing is just introducing this level of instrumentalized conspiracy theorizing, recognizing that, yes, you are doing this as part of base activation and a massive grift, but you are also doing so in a manner that does not benefit the country writ large. And we know where that what that resulted in with birtherism. And now I don't know where that goes here. Yeah, I mean, and I think that outside of the kind of long term health of American institutions context, like this brings me back to Georgia, right? Because the state of Georgia is already like they're running two runoff elections simultaneously at the same time that they're dealing with an automatic recount situation on the presidential election at the same time that there is going to be litigation over, you know, like whichever of the gajillion Trump suits uh, actually, and you know, last for more than a couple of days. That's a lot of stress on an election system. Um, just logistically speaking, like I definitely there are definitely concerns that the Georgia Secretary of State's office is not necessarily equipped to handle all of this stuff at once. And then when you cons- when you add the fact that the Georgia Secretary of State is under attack from the state's Republican Senate delegation for apparently not having done it right f- for unspecified reasons last time around, that has real implications for like how much that the Secretary of State's office may be able to get buy-in from state Republicans, how well they're going to be able to work with Republican-dominated counties. Like, there are real concerns about how you run a January 5th election. And then there's the kind of added question that you were alluding to earlier, Jane, of is it really going to turn out Republican voters for Republicans to be saying the election was rigged, your votes don't count? Meanwhile, Georgia Democrats have every reason to be fired up because the argument that the Stacey's Abrams of the world have been making for a decade, that if you increase the base of registered voters enough, you will be able to expand the map in ways that Democrats hadn't thought about. Like They have every indication that that is finally turning in their favor and every reason to turn out. So there are both kind of political questions here, but also it's just, it is going to be very interesting to see after an election day that was actually really non-dramatic compared to what I think a lot of people, I think there were a lot of expectations that you would see more obvious confrontation, that you would see bigger problems with voter access, longer lines, that kind of thing, partly because of the widespread use of vote by mail, the pressure was taken off. I talked to like one 
executive in Broward County who said that they were set up for, you know, 20 times more people than they actually got or something ridiculous like that. But after an election day that, that was fairly humdrum in terms of did the election go successfully, uh, you know, did it go smoothly? I really do think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in January. And that's going to be a good test of whether the stuff that's been thrown out there over the last several days is going to have a real and lasting impact or whether it's just going to be like for the lulls and for the cash. Let's take a break. And and I want to talk about what we actually saw in the election results. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So yesterday I, I was reading the New York Times, as one does, uh, even even pre-Jane. Um, and I saw there was an article in there by Jennifer Medina, um, who's really good, who's written a lot of good articles about the Latino vote and, and Trump's gains there. Uh, but they gave her the headline. Um, it's like, how did Democrats miss Trump's gains with Hispanics? And it was weird because like she herself had written a number of articles about this. And I know Democrats and Democrats read the New York Times. And hopefully some Democrats also listen to the weeds. Uh, when we had Veronica Escobar on, she talked very specifically about Trump's gains with Hispanic voters in the Rio Grande Valley. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so th- this was, in fact, not like an unknown phenomenon. What I do think it was is a phenomenon that people who did not have a specific professional interest, like Veronica Escobar is a 
Hispanic member of Congress from Texas. So she takes a strong, you know, professional interest in this question. I think a lot of normie Democrats who casually consume the news and progressive takes were not aware that this was happening because it cuts against, I think, a lot of just sort of broad brush narratives about what's going on in the universe. And like, that's the actual surprise here. It's not that like, it wasn't like, it was just in the polls, right? There was surprising stuff that happened on election day. uh, But this was actually not surprising if you'd been watching the data, listening to the people organizing in these areas, um, all, all this kind of stuff. But there was a, I think, profound reluctance to pay it attention to it. Like our episode on this subject was not a blockbuster. I I wrote two articles about this and they didn't go viral. Like people didn't want to hear that Trump is able to gain the support of a, not to overstate it, but like a a non-trivial minority of Black and Latino voters seemed to decide that they liked what Trump was selling after four years in office. And I think a lot of white liberals detached from the situation just like didn't want to hear that until it came slapping them in the face. This is, I mean, I'm going to try not to go on a rant defending the media, but it really, it, it was really striking to me to have... We tried this, to tell to have you. This, to, like, to have the kind of discourse over this unfolding at the exact same time that there was the discourse over how long it was taking to get a reliable result in the presidential election, when that too was something that had been an entire content stream with like actually a really impressive performance by major political media outlets to a to proactively inform people we are not going to know the results of the presidential election on Tuesday night. And it very much is frustrating to hear people essentially say, why didn't you force me to learn this? Why didn't you why didn't you go out of your way to explain to like to tell me that this was the most important thing? Um, It's just you know, I just I would love to make sure that everyone listening to this podcast, whether or not you're in the political or media professions, is like coming at stuff like this with a sense of curiosity, right? Not why wasn't I informed that this would be more important or that this would happen, but what is there out there that I can learn about this to kind of contextualize this data point that I've just learned in my surprise? Because, you know, as you're saying, Matt, like there was, you know, the it's not that surprising that Cubans are reliable Republican voters in South Florida. There were surprises there regarding like the strength of Cuban support for Donald Trump in 2020 versus 2016. And I don't think we fully understand that. And that's kind of that's something that I have seen. I saw some conflicting reporting on how that was going to go before the election. But the Rio Grande Valley is a really good example of a population that has been undermobilized politically and undercovered in national media. And that's both kind of a an answer to the question of why a lot of people are now surprised by it and have so much trouble not hinging entire narratives of the Latino vote on South Florida and the Rio Grande Valley, which are two incredibly different places, while not paying attention to the stuff going on in Arizona, um, which is a different population from either, but closer to the people in the in the RGV than it is to the, the folks in South Florida, just demographically speaking. But it's also, to a certain extent, I think, one of the explanations for how this happened to begin with, right? Because if you think of the RGV, not as a Latino vote, but as a population of people who have been 
given generations of evidence that politics doesn't work for them, it starts looking a lot more similar to other populations of people who went strongly for Donald Trump. Yeah, it's interesting. There is a um, there was some good reporting in The Wall Street Journal that we'll put in show notes that also talked about how one of our biggest challenges as we do what we do is what people think presidents are responsible for or how they impact the economy or gas prices or any of the major facets. Like We think about Donald Trump in a very different sensibility than someone who doesn't need to think about Donald Trump every day does. And so there was some really interesting reporting from the Rio Grande Valley that talked about how much stimulus checks mattered. And I actually I've been having this back and forth with um, Sagar Anjeri, who write, who's at the Hill, talking about how if Trump could have won, had that most recent round of stimulus funding gone through and had Trump not given up in on Twitter because he was listening to Stephen Moore. Never listen to Stephen Moore. That's that's the lesson we've all learned. But like. The idea that, you know, you when they talk to some Latino voters, again, this is a very specific area, as Daria noted, like, as Dara noted, sorry, Daria, what is happening? I heard that is as Daria, you noted, but yeah, wow, we're Let's already, go with already it. forgetting us. <laughs> no, I just started thinking. Great that, show, though. It's a great show. Um, but as Dara, you noted that these are different communities. I think that that we've seen a lot of very early prognosticating about like what wokeness meant. And I can't wait to find out from ver- people very specifically why black women are more, quote unquote, woke than black men. But that's an aside. You saw reporting talking about like, well, these stimulus checks really mattered. And we talked a lot about it on, you know, on different social media platforms and how gas prices went down and how these very concrete financial results showed up in resulting in more people voting for Trump. And that's why, um, you know, there's been some talk about like, oh, Biden needs to go after the deficit. And then you know, you hear from a lot of Democrats, like, absolutely not. No, like now's the time to start canceling student loans or doing something like that. Because when people see manifestly a thing happen that they like and the name attached to it is the person in the White House, they tend to associate those two things. Okay, so here's my stupid question about this. (laughs) Is like, how does this square with Trump running behind Senate Republicans? That is an excellent question. So I I did some research a couple weeks ago. And by research, I mean, I watched uh, Big Ten football via Hulu, which means I could see commercials that were not connected to the Washington, D.C. area. You know, I was doing it for research. Very important. And so I found it fascinating because if you were watching, I was watching Michigan, Michigan State game. And if you were watching that game, I have one never seen so many campaign commercials in my life, but also so many of the Republican commercials, especially in the Senate race in Michigan, at no point did anyone mention Trump at all. And I'd be very curious to see. And that's something that we saw starting in June. There was some interesting reporting from the Daily Beast talking about how Republican candidates had largely dropped Trump from their advertising. Uh, it's going to it looked a little different in Georgia, because I think that that was a race in which Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins were fighting about who loved Trump more and who was the Trumpier of the two Trumpy Trumpies. But I think that what you saw, interestingly, was a degree of willingness to act as a Republican, not as a Trump Republican. And again, we don't we're working from incomplete data. So I think that it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of months and years as we get more information that we will see how they did. But you know, you're seeing results in which Republican candidates in metropolitan areas did not lose as much as Trump did. And so mm. you see this consistently 
where I think part of that was from Michigan to Illinois to other areas was a willingness to untether themselves, at least in in word, if not indeed, from Trump, while attempting to attach Democrats to un- purportedly unpopular in their areas policies. And I think that that actually gets me something to something that I think is interesting or worth focusing on, because again, we have a lot of incomplete data. A lot of the messaging that we've seen over the last couple of days has been about like, oh, these democratic policies were too far left and people didn't like them. I think that that is it's a lot more complicated than that because we saw Trump won in states that also, you know, Florida passed a $15 minimum wage, numerous down ballot DSA candidates won in a lot of states as I've gotten like 17,000 emails about. I know, Matt, you're looking dubious, but I'm just saying that like, (laughs) this is not to say that like a purportedly left-wing message will win. It just means that voters, once again, are extremely complicated. They're like, they have heterogeneous views. They are absolutely willing to decriminalize marijuana and legalize medical marijuana and then decriminalize, as they did in Oregon, decriminalize cocaine, while also thinking, like, I don't like this particular candidate, but I do like this particular idea. (laughs) So I I just want to make a point about the the complexity of voters, because that's obviously... And so you look back on the election results, and I've heard from a lot of people, they're like, well, of course, the Latino community is not a monolith, and da 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 And like, that's all obviously true, right? Just like if somebody asked me a question about the politics of Mexico, and I was like, I don't know a goddamn thing about Mexico, but I could tell you that there are political cleavages based on religious observance and urban-rural divides and people's position in the class structure, just because that's how politics works in all countries. That's how it always works. So then, yes, Mexican-Americans also exhibit the basic um, behavior of human beings, right? Rural-urban divides, divides about religiosity, divides about gender norms, different positions in the class structure. Like, yes. So, like, it's not surprising, quote-unquote, that there's heterogeneous behavior or that, like, people's voting behavior is impacted by how they think the government is helping them financially. Like, that's super-duper normal. But I think that a lot of people on the progressive side spent years spinning a kind of broad brush narrative that that they were the ones who sort of obscured this, that Trump clearly one thing that Trump did was activate a lot of racial animosity in the United States. He said a lot of things. He did a lot of things. Uh, People had a lot of strong feelings about them. A lot of people with racist sentiments seem to have gravitated to him. And then a lot of people on the left put forward a narrative as if that was the only thing that was happening in, in politics. And it's just not. Right. Like we know, like we've always known, like Cuban Americans have their own relationship to the American party system and specific foreign policy concerns. A lot of Venezuelans seem to have been integrated to that. There's just like different stuff happening in Texas and Arizona. People have different priorities. I mean, I remember one black guy said to me, it's like, you know, white people think this is the first time we've had a racist in office. Right. Like there's just like more going on in people's political behavior than you. I I mean, like, in retrospect, it's like super clear. And everyone's like, well, we knew this all along. Why are you surprised? But like, people were, in fact, surprised. And they were surprised because there were a lot of uh, sort of simplistic takes on Trump era politics. 
I think that's fair. And, and I think that because the salience of like someone's ethnic identity or even like how they identify is contingent on how they're being treated, uh, which is something we're going to get to a little more later in the episode. Like I did think, you know, it was an open empirical question whether Cubans in South Florida, especially like second generation Cuban Americans would start identifying as Latino in this like, you know, assimilated into the American race race structure sense. And I think that there are kind of long-term questions here that are that are going to play out, but I think that yes, this election was was suggestive evidence that that has not happened or that like to the extent that you know that that perhaps in a an extremely heavily latino area like the rio grande valley that race is maybe less salient in the same way that race is less salient in overwhelmingly white states yes so you know there there are kind of there are open empirical questions here but i kind of also want to hammer on the incompleteness of data because and matt i know this is something you've been going off on on twitter like this year's exit poll is less helpful than most exit polls. There is a really good question about why Republican turnout was higher than expected in many regards. That is not the same as being surprised that turnout on election day was heavily Republican. And that's what the exit poll is going to reflect. So like, I think that in general, it's going to be more helpful to look at who are the kinds of people who showed up on election day and what does that tell us about uh, Republican, you know, are they showing up for Donald Trump or are they showing up for quote unquote Republican ideas or whatever, than to look at what did the people who showed up on election day believe? Yes. Let's take a break and, and talk about a white paper. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, so our white paper today is from Ricardo Dahis, Emily Nix, and Nancy Kian, and it is called Choosing Racial Identity in the United States, 1880 to 1940. And this is a paper about the idea of passing. 
which is uh, the phenomenon of African-American people, in this case studied between in about a 60-year period using census data, passing for white. Um, this is a pretty common, and it actually, the paper gets into just how common it was. Um, the paper found that over 300,000 black males passed for white between 1880 and 1940, uh, which is roughly about 16% per census interval on average. And so about 30% then reverse passed in the next census, as in being black in the next census. And it's also interesting to be using census data because this doesn't have anything to do with tax information. It doesn't have anything. The census data is based on you know, how you report yourself. And the importance of this and how the story, I think, that this paper told of Black men, um, they they focused on Black men because, in general, women might have changed their names uh, when they got married, so that'd be harder to track. And Black men who were unmarried or had few children, who essentially, for reasons made pretty obvious throughout the paper of the at the height of Jim Crow, when miscegenation as a mixed marriage was illegal, as where better opportunities, only opportunities were available for white people, people passed for white in census data. So, yeah. So I just talk a little bit about about methodology here. Right. So what, what they're doing is what's called linked census data. Right. So they, we do a census every 10 years. Um, it is uh, often frustrates uh, liberals that they do an actual enumeration rather than a statistical sample. But the actual enumeration is useful in this case because they literally write down this is your name, this is your address, this is when you were born, they write down some stuff about you. So you can then look at old census records and say, okay, here's two different people who have the same name and they have the same birthday, right? So we have a reasonable degree of certainty that they are the same person. Um, you can't do it for women because women change their names. I, obviously, men do change their names, some women don't, but you, you will get a very biased sample if, if you looked at women. With men, you can be reasonably confident that you have the same person. And then they show a few different things to check the robustness here. Because you might say, well, just because someone's written down in the census is white, that doesn't mean they were passing in society. Um, so they take advantage of the fact that during this time period, Japanese, Chinese, and Korean were considered to be races. Um, so you would expect that if the census takers were just confused, you would see a lot of Japanese to Chinese passing and vice versa, but you don't, right? You you see some Asian to white passing uh, in this data, um, not as much as black to white passing, almost no white to black passing, and very little like Japanese to Chinese passing, right? Or, or vice versa, which strongly suggests that it's based on the, the person answering the survey, telling you something. They also find, right, so there's there's like a well-known finding from uh, Trevon Logan and uh, somebody whose first name I forget, but whose last name is Parman, uh, that historically certain names are distinctively African-American. I mean, we know this in the present day, but they show that it was true in the past as well. And they show that men with those distinctively Black names are less likely to be... Uh, well, less likely to show up with their race swapped in later censuses, right? If you had a distinctively Black name, either you couldn't pass or you had to change your name, basically, is, is the finding there. And so those two things are like pretty good 
robustness checks, I think, that they are in fact measuring passing here. They're looking at black people with presumably fair skin, white acceptable names, and they are representing themselves to census takers as being white and they are being believed. And this is something, of course, we've always, we've known forever that this happened, but by definition, like, it's hard to count because people were not advertising themselves as as passing. And this shows that it's it's really quite common in this data, like hundreds of thousands of people. I kind of want to tweak something that we've been representing in kind of the story of, of how this data was generated, because it's not clear at all that this is based on self-reported race to the enumerator. Like the the guidance given to enumerators was sketchy enough that there's a belief that this is just kind of imputed by the like by the person going around taking the census, you know, that they would essentially look at how someone was living and impute their race from there, which kind of means that you know, you can you can look at that as a potential source of quote unquote enumerator error, or you could look at that and go, yes, that is in fact how race functions in American society on a day by day basis in the era of Jim Crow. Like this wasn't a, you know, you had to have, you know, this this wasn't a like papers please regime where you had to have evidence that you were the race you were representing yourself as at all times. It was ba- it's kind of based on this like gut check. Do you quote unquote look black? Are you dressed in such a way that suggests that you're black? Are you living in the black part of town? That kind of thing. And right. The idea of association gets into the paper that race by associate. There's a quote from a previous paper uh, from 2009 in this paper in other words, race by association trumped any other physical or documentary uh, documentary obvi- evidence. And the idea that we she must be white because we think she's white or she must be black because we sh- we think she's black. Right. Like this is it, it's fascinating that and, and this, of course, happens because in the American context, you're simultaneously pretending that race is this self-evidently natural category while creating it by making like guesses like these. So what's very interesting to me in this context is the kind of phenomenon of like, quote unquote, reverse passing, but reverse passing in the in the sense of you were recorded as black in one set, census, white in the next census, and then black again in, in the third. I would love to see more, more digging into that population and, and figuring out how those imputations were made. Because, because it wasn't somebody saying, yes, I'm black, yes, I'm white, yes, I'm black but rather the imputation made based on how they were living in three separate peer- snapshots in time, it would be very interesting to see whether there are commonalities among that population of, of like, whether it's a case of they're just on the boundary of whiteness and blackness. And so it depends on which do you send out there on a given day, or whether this is a case of people deciding that it wasn't worth being away from their family to pass for white and coming back home, and thus being in a household with people who, quote unquote, looked blacker. Yeah, it really is interesting, because this is an effort to attempt to use math to determine something that it was entirely not math or science based. Um, The one drop rule was not based on any literal understanding of African-American descent. And there's actually uh, one of the really interesting throwaway pieces of this is that um, just detailing how individuals today who identify as African-American are generally 24 percent European. 
And about a significant proportion of individuals who self-report as European-American, 3.5% have at least 1% African-American descent, which means that like, if you use the one-drop rule today, a lot of people would technically be African-American. And it is so interesting. And the it gets into this, and I, I, I won't repeat it, but the attempted pasting on of science or the legal definition of blackness onto racial science which was not a, a suit, which was a pseudoscience is so interesting because throughout this paper, you see anecdotal evidence in the footnotes of people who are just being told, like, you're going to be, we're going to send you away and you're white now and you can't come back. And this is what, you know, this is what you're going to do and your life will be so much better because of it. I found this paper to be, for me personally, like, deeply emotional, unexpectedly emotional, just thinking about the the families. Because you do get, um, as Dara mentioned, you do have some of the people who clearly identified as white in one census and then identified as black in the next census. But there are people, and there are stories uh, relatively frequently, there are people who genuinely were raised to believe that they were white and went on to marry a white person. And then only later in life did they ever find out that they were not, in fact, white. Because it turns out that that's not like it, there isn't some sort of huge tell because race is confusing. But also that this gets into, I think, a lot of our ideas about race even today treat race as a monolithic scientific entity when it's not really clear. There's an, you know, there's an example of a family mentioned here in which the family moved neighborhoods repeatedly from white to black to white again. This like the, the back and forth, I, the the family lines that were broken and the chat, like how difficult this would be. It just really got to me. Well, and so uh, years ago at at Vox, uh, Janae Desmond Harris wrote an article about a um a twenty three and Me genetic study or, you know, study of their their population. It's obviously not a representative sample of the United States. Uh, but what they found is that people with less than 28% like African, quote unquote, um, DNA background in the United States typically identified as white, um, which is, you know, a, a high-ish number. Right. And I think often represents sort of lost family history rather than, you know, present day, like millennial aged people with one black grandparent um, so much as just because because they also show like it's quote unquote white people living in the South have much more black ancestry. So, you know, I mean, you can you can see how that that comes to arise. Uh, so it's it's probably like distant past kind of stuff that people legitimately don't know about because part of passing is like not telling your kids what's going on because uh, kids are not um, good at keeping secrets. Uh, another thing I'll be interested to see, right, they study 1880 through 1940. Uh, the 1950 census, there's a 72-year rule uh, for, for census data. So the 1950 census will be out digitally with all these records in April 2022. And that should be a particularly interesting one because the 1940 to 1950 era spans World War II, which in the sort of anecdotes and literature was like, the biggest passing event uh, because you had, you know, people leave their homes, they sign up, the military wanted people, the military was segregated, uh, but took both black and white 
people. Um, and then, you know, lots of people just didn't go back to where they were from after years at war. It was not incredibly unusual. Uh, you have the like madmen version of that from, from the Korean War. Uh, but, you know, my, my grandfather grew up in Florida. It was a Jim Crow state at the time. Uh, he was Cuban-American, which was, you know, legally on the on the white side of the tracks, but socially not always. Um, and it, according to him, a not small number of Black people signed up in the white, you know, registrars around there. There were lots, be, be, precisely because there were lots of Cuban people and lots of Sicilians and like, you know, lot, lots of ways in the Tampa area at that time that you could get on the white side of the line. The problem was people didn't want hard breaks with their family and their lives and their community. But when you're going off to war, like that's a, a chance to sort of do that. And, you know, seeing seeing the numbers there, I think will... I don't know, be be even more interesting than what we have now. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the, the other thing about World War II, of course, is that it was also, at least like anecdotally and historically, we've come to understand it as a moment of increased racial consciousness for many Black men, in which, you know, the double, you know, the double victory campaign kind of making the fight for civil rights at home a lot more prominent the understanding of the way that they were treated, you know, in Europe in particular versus when they came back home, it would be it it would be interesting to see kind of how those two pressures resolved themselves among a population where some of them might have told the recruiter that they were white and then realized by the time they came back from war that actually the way that, you know, that that there really were important differences in the way that Black men were being treated in the way that they could be treated. What a time. I really, I, the, I think the last thing I'll say is that this is one of the most interesting papers, I think, that I've read in a long time, especially because it really gets to something that we've talked about before on the show and talking about mulatto individuals, of which I technically am one, and just how the, like, how racial categorization, it, ebbs and flows throughout time and seeing how these categories were blended and then not blended. It, it's really interesting to see how that looks even in an era that is not our own. Yeah. And with that, um, so it's a, I'm I'm really sad uh, that this this is the end of, of yeah. Jane's run here on the show. Uh, looking forward to hearing uh, the argument and who will argue there and what will they argue about. Uh, but no white papers allowed. No administrative nope. data. We've got no. Nope. We've got. If I see Swedish administrative <laughs> data, I will salute and look elsewhere. Send it, send it to us. You still, you still, you still got my number. Um, you know, we've got patents on all that stuff. It's very, uh, it's very locked down. Um, looking forward to uh, the, the the next four years starting on Friday. Uh, we're gonna have Carl Smith uh, from Bloomberg and uh, the Tax Foundation talking about uh, the macro economy and the prospects of legislative deal making. Uh, he he knows Republicans and stuff, so that's why. why I like to talk to Carl. And uh, with that, uh, so thank you, Jane, for so many wonderful episodes over the years. Um, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Jeffrey Geld, uh, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. 
great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.